0: What we know is that the average age of exposure in the US right now is at around 11 years of age. The average age of of marriage in America right now is 28 years old. So we have this time span from the age of 11 to the age of 28 where I see people that have been highly engaged in this porn culture for all of these years and then they get married And whether they choose to stop before they get married, whether it's something that emerges after the wedding, there's this kind of false belief that if I just stop, there's not going to be any ramifications from a decade, two decades, whatever it is, of all of this imagery and all of this highly fantasized sexuality.
1: Dear young married couple, you're in a busy season of your life. You're probably working and involved in ministry on top of that you might even be parents or students you're maxed but you really want to stay connected in your marriage
2: and that's why we're bringing this podcast to you
1: i'm adam king
2: and i'm carissa king and we work with busy couples just like you in our counseling office here in sacramento california we also work with couples all over the world through online counseling and our couples are really just looking for ways to communicate with each other more effectively Some of them are looking to heal from a breach in trust or find direction in fulfilling the purpose that God has for them.
1: So come and join us as we have a conversation. We'll talk with therapists, authors, pastors, and other couples who will pour into us, giving us tools to become more intimately connected, get adventurous, and find purpose.
2: Welcome Dr. Devon Mills. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: We are excited to interview you. We know that you have a wealth of information to share with our listeners and, um, we've been able to interview you before. So for those who are listening, if you want to go back and listen to, um, rebuilding trust, um, that is an excellent interview that we did on our YouTube channel with Dr. Mills. So we urge you to go back and listen. Um, so Dr. Mills, we just want to share a little bit about you with our audience um, you are a pastor and you are a mental health professional. Um, so, we'll ask yes. you to share specifics about that. How long have you been in pastoral ministry?
0: So, I've been in some form of pastoral ministry for the last 23 years.
2: 23 years.
0: Um, kind of coming straight out of undergrad, um, went into ministry, uh, vocational ministry with a church, and then have just done kind of every role there is. I've been student pastor, youth pastor, music person, associate pastor, lead pastor. So nice, kind of covered the full spectrum of all. the ministry. Yes. I've kind of gone A to Z with that. So I've been doing that for 23 years.
2: Awesome. Wow. Yeah. So that's exposed you to a lot of um, the world of people who are hurt and hurt yes. people that hurt people in, in the church and then outside the church as well in your role as a, a mental health counselor. Tell us your title, your pr- professional title.
0: So I am a licensed professional counselor, uh, LPC. And I my actual degree is in marriage and family therapy, but I ended up specializing more in individual counseling. Um, so I have LPC is the licensure I went for. And I'm in private practice and I work primarily with men, complex trauma survivors, Um, a lot of people with sexual abuse in their childhood. And then I would say a lot of my population I work with would be individuals that have addictions, sexual addictions that kind of spin out of complex trauma. Mm. And I also have um, a doctorate in counselor education and supervision. And I'm assistant dean of the School of Counseling at Richmont Graduate University here in Atlanta.
2: Nice. Well, thank you for sharing. You are definitely highly qualified to speak on the topic that we're covering today. And I know your experience will probably um, meld into a lot of what we're discussing today. The primary topic that we'll be going over is pornography addiction, other sexual addictions, and how they... Um, affect the marital union and the sense of safety and sexual connection when they're trying to heal from those addictions. Well,
1: because we've talked yes. about how pornography is so uh, it just ruins so many aspects of your marriage and you yes. as a person. And I think people are becoming more and more aware of the danger. Right. But they're completely lost in the process of healing from it in themselves. Mm-hmm. And with their spouse, yeah. So maybe you could speak a little bit to that.
2: Yeah, share with us maybe mm-hmm. a a story that you have of a client you've worked with where you're, you've you've walked alongside them in healing from an addiction. Okay. Yeah.
0: So I think the first thing before I I share a particular story that's really uh, to me one of the, the more powerful stories is. um in Christianity in particular, we've really, really focused on dealing with pornography as we need you to, to just stop watching it. Okay. And that's really where the impetus has gone. It's like, how do we create um, you know, the, the software systems that make it difficult to get into on your computer? How do we limit phone access? We've put a lot of resources at large in the world into the actual process of stopping looking at pornography. What we know is that the average age of exposure in the US right now is at around 11 years of age. The average age of a marriage in America right now is 28 years old. So we have this time span from the age of 11 to the age of 28 where I see people that have been highly engaged in this porn culture for all of these years and then they get married And whether they choose to stop before they get married, whether it's something that emerges after the wedding, there's this kind of false belief that if I just stop, there's not going to be any ramifications from a decade, two decades, whatever it is, of all of this imagery and all of this highly fantasized sexuality, and essentially having this really people have these really rich fantasy sex lives and then they go into marriage and they're thinking it's going to be a different kind of sex life and it creates this incredible conflict um, and it's really difficult for people to get over. Wow. Um, yeah. So much more so than just stopping and it being like, okay, well, I've I've been able to kick the habit, so now let's get on with healthy marriage. It doesn't work that way at all.
2: Wow.
0: Um, it's,
1: it's kind of like... It- Having a terrible diet, yes. From from you know young childhood to Uh, being an adult and being completely healthy and expecting yourself to perform in every single way.
0: Yeah. Are you shaming me over my diet right now? (laughs) No.
2: (laughs) What did you have for breakfast?
0: You've seen me eat. Um, (laughs) Yes, it is that very same thing of like. It's not a matter of just, I'm going to put in six weeks, six months of cutting out sugars or switch from full calorie Coke to diet Coke. It's a a radical lifestyle change, and we don't understand the ramifications of it for years Hmm. of of what it gets into. And we see the same thing when people have had long-term exposure to pornography use. So Um,
1: with long-term exposure, what – what do you see happening maybe or maybe come at it from the um perspective of now we're married okay and we have these problems what problems do you expect to pop up what are the warning signs
0: okay so i would say one of the things that i have encountered more and more and this is a unique thing of where you almost have a really strong generational shift in here um gen x has a completely different experience than the millennial generation or Gen Z, um, in that Gen X was exposed typically well after marriage started or their early exposure was to magazines and things they didn't have easy access to. Um, So that's a separate thing. I'm gonna talk about the millennial generation because that's primarily who I work with. Um, What I'm seeing more and more and more is they have spent years looking at pornography um, masturbating high frequency of masturbation they're getting married and they're actually not able to achieve orgasm through traditional intercourse Mm -hmm. which creates a lot of strain on the marriage in almost every situation i've dealt with for the wife even if there's been an extinguishing of viewing pornography and they're on really solid ground of being able to say, I'm not watching porn. And that's a true fact. When they're not able to engage in normative, healthy sex with their partner, the wife walks away with a just a lot of self-esteem, like a big hit to the self-esteem, because there's, regardless of how many times we say it, yeah. we can't convey that message. It's not you. It's what they've watched for years the the wife almost universally personalizes this Mm -hmm. to i can't compete and i'm never going to be able to meet his needs um and we can't even do this basic function we're not even talking about good sex we can't even complete the act of sex Mm. yeah
2: and that's when they come to you and they're like help us how do you start that healing process with them
0: um so it feels a little bit of a, taking some steps back before we can move stor- forward. Okay. Um, if they're willing to do it, to have the optimum outcome is I ask the couple to stop all form of sexuality completely. Um, ideally, if we could get couples to agree to 90 days of no sexual interaction, that gives us the best amount of time for things that need to chemically and mentally reset to really reset but what we need is we need i'm going to go with the male because that's the population i work with we need the male to have time to really to have kind of detoxed from that porn um diet to the brain so that and and from what it's like to achieving orgasm through masturbation because that's completely different than achieving it through intercourse um and so we need there to be this normalization of the body so there's a need for a physiological shift before we can ever actually start working on the intimacy piece of this. Um, A couple can connect emotionally and intimately, but if we don't have that physiological reset, we're going to have a really, really difficult time getting the sex piece to work correctly, which is going to inhibit how they can connect intimately. Yeah, Um, And I'm not using the word intimate in exchange for sex. They're two radically different things. (laughs)
1: Nice. <laughs> I feel like people focus so much on just the brain aspect. Yes. But we forget that we're very holistic.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that
1: we are dealing very much with hormone levels, with chemical mm-hmm. imbalances in our brains and our bodies. Because really, what we're talking about is not only emotional, and mental, and spiritual, but it's also very physical.
0: Right. Very very physical. And so you're um, using
1: the terminology as like detox just like we would talk about like an addict.
0: Yeah, it really does. And I consistently hear, um, I've had people that have like had GI problems for two or three days when they've stopped. Mm -hmm. I've had people that like literally shake, um, get the shakes to use addiction language. Mm -hmm. Um, They're actual withdrawals. And it's always kind of, perplexing to me that people push back against that so much when all of the research out there compare sexual addiction to like cocaine addiction so we're literally saying okay we want you to stop this decade-long 15-year-long 17-18 year-long stimulant addiction and expect no recourse from your body mm-hmm. yeah. and and that's really not feasible to do and we want you to go from this really learned behavior when we're talking about physical sensation to talk about some of the holistic things where the bodies learn to respond to a specific type of physical stimulation and we want you to respond in this really, really dip to this different stimuli and it be just this kind of blow your mind, knock your socks off event. Well, that's not realistic. Right, right.
1: What about, because you're a pastor, and mm-hmm. this is why we're doing this with <laughs> you, because this is a very difficult subject for yeah. for some to take in. How, where do we bring God into this? Because God is in everything that we do. But um, what is His role? That's a hard way of asking it. But what is His yeah. role? in this is it just like please just go down to the altar and pray we expect you to drop off a, a cocaine habit that you've had for yeah. decades
0: so i was raised with this saying being repeated in my life by a spiritual leader that you can never do what only god can do and god will never do what you can do hmm. and i think that is truly at the basis of this is God will do the parts that we can't do. God will heal the hurts of the wounding. God will bridge the gap. God will give empathy and compassion and love and capacity within the marriage because those are things that can only really come by spiritual means. Um, But God, there's some things that we have to do and God's not gonna do those things. us in the same way that someone doesn't we go back to the diet example someone doesn't just have a good prayer meeting and drop 50 pounds they have to they have to go to a calorie deficit and there's a withdrawal from sugar and there's craving those carbs and there's the body adapting and not always liking the discipline of what takes place but just because god's empowering us doesn't mean that we're going to wake up the next day and be at our goal weight in the same way We're not going to pray about this and wake up the next day and everything have magically shifted and aligned um, when there's clearly some responsibility we have to take in this.
1: Where does that responsibility start for someone?
0: So I think when I go back to where I kind of started is when I encourage people to take that break from sex. Um, That's not fun. Um, Here's a statement men don't like to hear. You don't need sex you we've created a culture that says you need sex and that women need to be available. There's like that horrid research that's not valid that says every 72 hours, men need sex. Um, that's not true. No one's ever died from a lack of sex. <laughs> right. Um, and if we have engaged in behaviors that have rewired our brains and re- rewired us physiological, physiologically. Mm -hmm. We we have to take the responsibility of saying, okay, this is going to require taking a break. And I think we have biblical precedent. Paul talks about agreeing. He talks about the couple having a sexual conversation of not being together, a conversation about their sexuality, and taking a break for a specific amount of time so that they can come back together. Yeah. And so I think that this is where it is much more biblical than we believe it is to do these kinds of things. And it's also very much we have to take the responsibility of saying this is not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. But at the same time, it's very, very much. I do this work every week with people and the people that I see achieving their goals are the people that go into this saying, "Okay, if we need to not have sex for 30 days. We're not going to, if that's what it's going to take. And I do see clients come back and say, you know what? We took that break. We used some things like sensate focus and just learning. Talk
1: about that. Like what, what does that mean?
0: So sensate focus is essentially um, a very dry term for erotic touch. And it's really, really helpful for someone that has, learned their sexuality and their view of sex through pornography, through fantasy, um, through fantasy to actually learn what their partner's body. And so the goal of it is actually, you go into it with this very strategic plan of, we're going to physically touch. Um, all sexual anatomy is off. It's out of bounds. And, we're not going to engage in sex, regardless of how aroused anyone becomes. The whole purpose is us learning one another's bodies and learning what it's like to have skin-to-skin contact and respect a human body. Um, and so when they start learning that discipline of like, oh, I can touch and I can appreciate and I can cherish and it doesn't have to end in sex, when there is the point that we're reading re-engaging sexually, it's much more meaningful because they've learned to respect the whole person and who they Mm -hmm. represent emotionally, physically, spiritually, and sexually becomes the next component that is added into that.
2: so powerful. I know um, when we prescribe that period of abstinence and implement things like Sensate Focus, um, there's a lot of pushback. Always. So how do you deal with that pushback?
0: Um, if I have the rapport with the client, my, my pushback is we don't have to. This is e- even without rapport. I always say you don't have to do anything I'm suggesting. You did ask me how to resolve this issue. Okay. And so if you if you want the gold standard of this is the quickest way to resolve it, Here's the best way to resolve it. You don't have to do that, but you're just going to keep doing some variation of this cycle that you're in. And so it's really between you and your spouse of how long you want to do this dance. Mm -hmm. And And if it's working for you, then that's another topic.
2: Yeah, yeah, true.
1: How easy is this to do without a counselor?
0: I think it's very, very difficult um, because, and the reason I think it's difficult is anytime you have addiction that's been present, you almost always have someone that, the person who is addicted is very, very skilled at gaslighting their partner and can manipulate at high, high levels. Um, and so it's so easy without a third party to fall into those manipulation patterns and for that addiction language to settle in. Um, and so I think that third party being able to say, ah, that sounds like addiction language talking.
1: Could you talk a little bit about gaslighting? What, what exactly yes. happens because I'm sure this is happening in some people's lives. Yeah.
0: It, that's essentially when we, can turn it into the other person's fault um to engage in the behavior we engage in so if you would have sex with me more frequently um if you would be more adventurous in the bedroom if you would lose this amount of weight if you would wear this type of clothing um, then i wouldn't have to go look at porn i wouldn't need to masturbate or you know i don't you know men have to have a sexual release every three days? Um, we get into all of that where it's we create guilt for the partner in order that the one with the addiction can get their way, mm-hmm. and and this is one that I keep hearing really frequently that um, people that want to continue to hide their addiction talk about. Well, I don't want to tell my spouse because I don't want to hurt them. Mm-hmm which is such a misnomer because if if you don't want to hurt them, don't look at pornography because then you don't have to keep a secret. So the decisions made when you look at pornography that you chose that you're open to hurting your spouse, telling them the truth is not where you get to make the decision over whether you want to hurt them or not. Right. You've already made bi- that decision. Yeah. You yeah. bypassed that exit a while back. Yeah. And so that's not your choice anymore. Yeah.
2: Wow.
1: Hey friends, we'll be right back to the interview, but one quick note. If you love what you're listening to, you might also enjoy going through our card decks that we designed to help couples just like you stay a part of each other's world.
2: So there's Foundations, which is our starter deck, and it's all about boosting your communication skills. And then there's Sex Expectations.
1: What is that about?
2: Which is all about spicing up your intimate connection. And then very soon, we'll be launching Realizations which is a deck for all couples, but especially dating or engaged couples who want to see how well they really know each other. So grab a deck or two or three by heading over to our website, slash All
1: right, back to the show.
2: You um, work primarily with men, and so I know a lot of your examples and references are to the the man having the addiction. Um, More and more, we're seeing that women are addicted as well. Yeah. Do you hear of your clients who are primarily men um, whose wives have uh, exposure to pornography and they're trying to work through this together?
0: I have. And I've, I've had a little bit of both kind of situations where the wife is engaged in that I've had it where it's been a shared thing with both partners, either looking at it separately or together as a couple, and then I've had it where the man is the one that's been betrayed by a sex or pornography addiction um, that the wife has brought into the relationship. Um, I would say if, if I speak to when the wife is the one that has the the addiction with pornography or the use of pornography, we see um, we see the same thing in terms of self-esteem of the man really, really taking a hit to his Mm self-esteem, self-worth, what gets shifted around a little bit is men are much less likely to ask for help. Mm -hmm. They tend to be so much more embarrassed um, about saying this is going on. where it's almost like we've created a culture where it's okay for women to not have great self-esteem, but men have to pretend like self-esteem is not an issue they struggle with. Um, and so that, that gets into all kinds of other things, but that's a thing when it's a couple, it, it's such a challenge because there's a train of thought that's been perpetuated that if you're doing it together as a couple, that it's not, innately unhealthy and i just think that is such a toxic way of thinking and i've found it to be about a 50 50 split of who drives that train of thought in a marriage sometimes it's the wife sometimes it's the husband but it's not as much the man as we tend to think it is Wow, um, i would say it's about a 50 50 split when i've worked with couples where um joint porn use has been an issue
2: yeah because it's not just you know, we hear we hear that, you know, the the male is so visual, and so he's going to be the one to drive that, but like you said, that's not the case all the time.
0: No, it's not at all. It, I may have my numbers a, a little bit wrong on this because I can't pull the data right off the top of my head, and, Chris, you may know this. Um, I think when we get into just hard and fast numbers that when we do sex drives, it, it's only like 60% of men have more sex drive than their spouses. Mm. And we're made to believe it's something like 99% of men have the stronger sex drive and this rare anomaly of a female comes along. And that's really not the case. It's Mm. more like 60-40 and it's hitting like that's pretty close to half.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And when it comes to pornography exposure and addiction, um, because those are two separate things, but actually when it escalates to the addiction uh, yeah. category what we're seeing is in the 18 to 35 age range it's 75 percent of women and 76 percent of men right yeah so it's really not so different
0: it's not different at all and we still tend to classify it really differently which i think the porn industry plays a huge role in because they have really they capitalized on this and took a like more of a marketing approach to it mm-hmm. so they've created whole genres of pornography that appeal to kind of the female uh, anticipated emotional attunement that a female would have so we're most of the time we're talking about really separate genres of pornography so it almost when you start talking about it feels like you're talking about two separate things because with men tends to be super graphic almost violent at this point and with women they tend to really hone in on we're going to create storylines and romances and this really kind of like the fantastical romance that ends with this like really big sexual event. So it does feel markedly different in the types of porn they're looking at. But again, the numbers are not lying there. We're talking about the same amount of people looking at. Mm
1: -hmm. So just kind of bring us back to, because a little bit ago, you said the goal you know what is the couple's goal or the gold standard let me get you there what is possible because people who maybe their trust was just broken they're in the in the midst of going trying to figure out where they stand and sometimes people are like I can't stand the thought of even being intimate with this person yeah that hurt me
0: yeah um, so can we, I speak on one thing one part about sure. that real quickly that I see couples kind of prone to doing this is when a partner finds out they've been betrayed with pornography um, or with an affair or whatever. There's almost this kind of really unique thing of where the person that's been betrayed tends to like want to engage sexually, and there's like almost this hypersexualization that takes place, um, and then they get. A few months into weeks or months into that, and then that feeling s- sets in of like, ooh, I don't even want this person near me. I don't want this person to touch me. Um, and they like do this hard stop to it, which then makes the person that had the addiction. It's kind of like crazy making in their brain because they think, what happened? We were things were going well, and now things are not going well. And I see a lot of relapses in that time frame right there. So that's another reason I really lean heavily into, can we do a stop on sexual interaction? Even if you want to and think it's a smart idea, it's probably not.
1: Mm -hmm. So good. So the people that are afraid of starting counseling, um, because there's a lot of them, we see them all the time. Oh yeah. They wait, I, I heard this statistic and it just stood out to me that people wait only four hours after chest pain to go to the ER. Yeah, but wait—I think it was five years after the first chest pains, or so to speak, of their marriage. Yeah, you know, their marriage is falling apart around them, but they still won't reach out because of fear, or maybe of what they'll find.
0: Yeah, I think there's a fear of what they'll find. I think there's incredible embarrassment, Um, just a lot of embarrassment around things. There can be some shame. I think we have started overusing the word shame, and I'm a huge advocate of using the word appropriately. And I think it's as detrimental as the research indicates it is. But there's so much just embarrassment. And so what? I don't think we can survive living in chronic shame. Yeah. Um, we have to break that. But if, if you're listening and you're just embarrassed, you will, you will survive embarrassment. Um, so I would say kind of embrace just the getting it out of your mouth for the first time and like saying the words, that's going to be the hardest part, Mm. um, but it takes far more courage to go see a counselor than it takes to try to work on this yourself. Anyone can hide courageous people show up. Mm. And so I would encourage you like, yes, it's going to be embarrassing. It's not going to be your proudest moment, and it's going to be one of the most important decisions you make for your marriage.
1: Well, it's also the courageous who win the battle.
0: Yes, it is. Yeah. It's the people that are willing. Um, and to go back to one of Chris's remarks earlier about uh, a story of someone, and they they give me permission to share this. I number of years ago, I've been working with an individual right at five years. Um, probably one of the most acute porn addictions I had ever worked with, still have ever worked with, was when we started working together, the client wasn't yet 30 and had already been watching porn almost daily for more than 20 years, um, right at 20 years. Um, and when he came to see me, he said, um, Dr. Mills, there is there is no fantasy woman in my brain. He said, "I, I can't even fantasize a whole human. I look at a room and I think, if you took her arms and her legs and her face and her chest and you like turned this into a person that would be a pretty person Extreme so he really objectifying. came incredibly mm. objectifying um and so he came in not even able to even put together a whole person for a fantasy and we walked through that we journeyed through that to a point where there was a cessation of use of pornography where there was this ability to see people and engage with people. And then I've had the privilege of meeting his very wonderful wife that he's in a really healthy relationship with that he didn't think, literally when he came in, he came because his biggest fear was, I think I've got to the point that I don't know that I'll ever be able to have an actual relationship. Mm. And so to see them in a really thriving, healthy marriage now, when you go all the way back to someone that literally was piecing body parts together to come up with a fantasy. Oh. I think that speaks to people that are willing to do the work and show up. You can go a long, long distance.
2: That's incredible.
1: And the goal would uh, be that, that ability to heal in your marriage, forgiving yourself for what you've done, feeling like yes. you've reconciled with God, even though he's forgiven yeah. you, I don't think people forgive themselves.
0: Yeah. Just can't yeah. see that but,
1: for themselves.
0: And and I think part of that that comes in is because again we don't address the physiological impact so much, um, and so when we have people that they've literally I'm going to use a word loosely they've kind of broken their bodies in that, you know I have 24 year olds that can't um, can't get aroused, and I have 26, 27 year olds that can't achieve orgasm and intercourse. So they've literally broken their bodies to this point. I think it's really hard for them to show up at church and think they're okay with God when they go home and like their actual physical bodies won't work because of what they've done to it. Um, That's a hard thing to kind of reconcile. So that's why I think like jumping in and doing this work is important because the body will respond appropriately. And then that gives us a whole different space to recognize, you know what, God has worked in my life. Here's a notable difference. Here's a physiological change that's happened because of my commitment to change this behavior. So good. Can you that.
1: can you kind of walk us through kind of briefly? I know we're kind of getting to the time here, but can you walk us briefly through the steps that you because the steps that generally happen when you're walking somebody through this journey from incredibly addicted What are some of the things that you focus on and what is the progression like?
0: So the primary thing I always start with is what is your support system? Who is your support system? So many wonderful resources with Celebrate Recovery, so many church-based programs, S-A-S-A-A, um, those type 12-step programs. I think everyone needs to be in those in addition to counseling. Those programs are free. They do a great job. Um, so I always start with what what is your social support system look like? Who do you call? I really start leaning in, before I ever really get fixated on too much behavior, it's developing that support. And what does it look like for you to start calling support on the front end of this, instead of doing it for the purpose of confession afterwards? Um, so I hone in on that and then we kind of come to a point where it's like, okay, what's your stop date? Like when, when's the last time? And they kind of just make that commitment. And what I tell people is your body's going to give you about anywhere from 14 to 20 days of where it's like, okay, you want to behave, we'll let you. You get today 15, 21, somewhere in that range. And that addictive part of the brain that's used to getting the dopamine and all of those chemicals, kicks in and from about day 20 to day 35 or 40, there's nothing noble, pretty good about the process. It's just the white knuckling phase where you just say, I'm not gonna do it for the sake of not doing it. And this is where people that are really serious about it, I've had people, they have locked their computers in the trunk of their car. I have multiple clients that have switched to flip phones. people that want to get free take this serious. And then from about day 40 to day 90, it's going to be a little bit of a roller coaster with that intensity ebbing and flowing, but never being quite as bad as that kind of 15 original 15 day window. If we get to day 90, we've got a new neural pathway to work with. Beautiful. And so at, at that point, it's not something that's just completely in the rearview mirror, but it is something now where we actually have the cognitive brain space to ask the question, do I really want to give up 90 days of sobriety?
1: Wow. And now you most leverage people, leverage against yourself.
0: Yeah. You do. You really, really do. And the further you go with that, by the time you get to about a year without having looked at it, it takes more mental gymnastics to talk yourself into looking at pornography than it does to talk yourself into staying sober. Beautiful. So, such hope. It is, it's It's truly, um, people don't like to hear this, but I, I'm a firm believer in it. Recovery is not without relapse. Mm-hmm. Relapse is part of recovery. Um, and that's okay, keep moving forward, keep the progress going, keep going to therapy, keep going to your 12-step meetings, get a sponsor, engage your social support system, and do the steps and, and it will work there's hope out of this. I work with people. I love the fact that on a weekly basis that I'm working myself out of a job with some people.
2: Right. It's a good thing.
0: It is a good thing. Um, I love when I get wedding invitations in the mail from people that didn't think they could get married mm-hmm. um, because of this. I'm, so all of those things prove there's hope and there's a way out.
2: Oh, love it. Love it. Well, we're going to be wrapping things up and before we do, um, we just want to ask our listeners, um, we're going to be closing with our, our Dear Young Married Couple letter that we close every session with. We wanted to ask you, though, before we do that, if you're enjoying the podcast, um, please take 60 seconds or so and leave us a love note or a star rating on iTunes. And if you can share with us why you love it or even how it's helping you, that would mean a lot. Uh, we read every review and we take it to heart. Um, it's a new podcast, so your reviews make a big difference in helping us reach more couples. So thanks so much, friends. Okay, so on to our Dear Young Married Couple letter. Dr. Mills, we want you to rewind to the first few years of your marriage. And what advice do you wish you would have received? And fill in the blank with a sentence or two, or a few. Dear Young Married Couple.
0: I wish for you that you could enter this relationship with curiosity as the goal, more so than doing it right. Mm. I wish that you had permission to know that you're learning and it's okay to get it wrong sometimes and to just be curious and to recognize, okay, that didn't work. What do we need to do instead? And to just keep curiosity is kind of the key word of what you're doing as a couple.
2: Love it. That is beautiful. Ah, Instagrammable cool. for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. It means a lot.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I love what you guys are doing. Thank you for what you're doing.
2: We appreciate uh, you. It's an honor you. that you've joined us. We wish you the best. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on the podcast again soon.
0: I look forward to it. Thank you.
1: All right, friends, we really hope that today's conversation was beneficial for you. If you're wanting some help, some individual or couples counseling to help with broken trust in your marriage, this is a very difficult problem to solve by yourself. We'd love to come alongside you and help you through this process. Just reach out. Give us a call at 916-678-1797 or shoot us an email at hello at com.
2: No matter where you are in the world or in your marriage, we can set up a counseling session with you and we can work toward healing. We also post marriage advice regularly on our Instagram, which is at Dear Young Married Couple. And we'd love for you to join us there in conversation. All right. See you next week.